The scripture reading today is from Mark 11, 11 through 33. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and when he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Since last fall, we've been in the Gospel of Mark most of the time. I don't know how it feels to you, but it's been a lot of sermons, 35 sermons, I think, I counted this week from the Gospel of Mark. And the title of our series has been Astonished, 35 sermons to hopefully leave us more astonished by Jesus. And so I was thinking this week it would be great for all of us to take this thought go this week, whether we've heard 35 sermons or just a few, and say, am I more astonished by Jesus now than I was then? I hope so. I pray so. But I wonder, because I know it's easy to lose our sense of awe. It's easy to focus on ourselves and other people and other things. And it's easy not to be astonished by Jesus. 
And in this way, we're not too different from the people we run into in Mark 11. I want to walk with you today down the dirt roads in the passage, through the temple courtyards in the passage, and I want us to pause long enough to hopefully, by God's grace, be astonished by what we see in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Father, open our eyes. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you in all of your power and all of your glory and all of your humility. Holy Spirit, would you pierce our hearts and change us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage opens and it's Sunday evening, what we would call Palm Sunday. And so that's the exciting day of the triumphal entry, but it's, it's later in the day. And we get the sense that maybe the crowds have gone home and the shouts of Hosanna have faded. And, the, and it's a quieter night. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. These are the kinds of verses that we usually skip. Maybe you don't see anything too doctrinal. You don't see a phrase that you might want to memorize. But wait, slow down. He entered Jerusalem. Jesus entered Jerusalem. And as I thought about that and the significance of that this week, is there any way to help us grasp that? It might be like Abraham Lincoln showing up in Washington, D.C. today, or Babe Ruth walking into Yankee Stadium, or if you're a techie, Steve Jobs showing up at your Apple store over here. Except Jesus is so far greater than those people. It's hard to wrap our minds around this moment. But if we slow down, we think, if Jesus is a prophet, then the great prophet, the one that we've been waiting for since Moses, has entered Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets. And if we believe he's a priest, then the great priest has entered the temple around the time of Passover. And if we think he's a king, then the Messiah has come to Zion, the city of the great king. It's a big moment. Jesus takes a few moments to look around at everything. And I just wondered this week, what did he see? Heading towards Passover, it's a week of sacrifice. What is he thinking? What is he feeling? His arrival in Jerusalem sets the scene for what we think is the most important week in history. These are not random events at all. Jesus is about to demonstrate his astonishing authority, but in ways that no one saw coming. It's just Sunday night, and only Jesus knows what's going to happen between this Sunday and next Sunday. But it's late. He's probably tired. And so he takes a two-mile walk with the 12, his closest friends, to Bethany. It seems like he was spending the night in Bethany. Perhaps he was there staying with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, some of his close friends. It's good to be with your friends when you're going through the hardest week of your life. So Jesus wakes up Monday morning. That's the next scene. He, he leaves Bethany without breakfast. And I just was wondering why. If he's with Mary and Martha, maybe Martha was off her game. Maybe she wasn't serving. Maybe Mary still wasn't helping. Maybe Jesus was just so eager and zealous to do what he needed to do that he just took off without breakfast. Either way, we find out that he's hungry. We see that in verse 12, the humanity of Jesus. He's hungry. The disciples are walking with them from Bethany to the Mount of Olives. They would have known this path. This would be their way to go from Bethany towards the temple, through the Mount of Olives, Garden of Gethsemane. 
Look at verse 13. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. So if you hear that verse and you say, wait, what just happened? You're not alone. Because Christians and non-Christians have been asking that about this passage for centuries. Why is Jesus so mean to the fig tree? What did that tree do to him? It's late March, maybe early April. Figs usually come in June, I've learned, in that part of the world. So isn't Jesus slightly overreacting? In his book, Why I'm Not a Christian, Bertrand Russell actually points to this passage and says, this is a reason why I reject Jesus. Now, before you go there too, take a deep breath, feel bad for the fig tree if you want, but then realize this isn't really all about the fig tree. How do I know? You take a look and you see how Mark makes a sandwich out of the fig tree and the temple stories. Mark Davis covered the cleansing of the temple last week and we're sort of going back through there as we move to the end of Mark 11 because it fits. It fits in the fig tree story. Jesus curses the tree, then he cleanses the temple, and then he comes back to the fig tree. And that would be choppy storytelling, unless there was a point. And there is a point, I think, with the temple and the tree, Mark is showing us the authority of Jesus as a prophet and a priest. We don't talk much about prophets and priests in our culture, but these are very significant offices in the Bible. You've seen these elements in our liturgy this morning and how Bill has helped set that up for us. We need to understand what prophets do. In the Old Testament, prophets would spend time in the presence of God. They were close to him. And then the Lord would send them out to speak his word to people. Sometimes their words would look toward the future when we talk about messianic prophecies, those sorts of things, what the Lord's going to do to bring judgment and salvation. But more often than not, the prophets would speak God's word into the present. What's going on in culture? What's going on with the people? They could see what others couldn't see because God gave them insight and God called them to share it, which was not an easy job because prophets called people out in their sin and then they called people back to repent, come back to the Lord. So usually people didn't want to hear that and being a prophet was not very popular. But we need prophets because God made us to be dependent on him. We can't figure out his will. We can't figure out our life on our own. We need to hear his voice. We need his revelation. And that revelation has unfolded for thousands of years. And then Jesus comes. You read the first few verses of Hebrews 1. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's a different kind of prophet. So when Jesus comes, he's not just another prophet saying, thus says the Lord, here's what God has to say. Jesus is the Lord. He is what God has to say. So this is the person standing before the fig tree. This is the prophet on his way to the temple, thinking about what he's going to see there. I'm not an expert in figs. I've spent more time thinking about figs this week than I ever have. But apparently when a fig tree is blooming, you can expect either the mature fruit 
or a smaller kind of fruit that grows earlier in the season. So a hungry traveler like Jesus could pick these pieces of early fruit and enjoy them even before the mature figs come. So I think Jesus is being reasonable. A tree that looks healthy should have fruit. And this tree looks healthy, but there's no fruit. And so there's something wrong with this tree, even though it looks good. Like the prophets of the past, Jesus takes an object and he turns it into a lesson. The fig tree becomes like a living parable. And Jesus is using it to describe the condition of his people, Israel. He's being reasonable. Israel should be a fruitful tree. Think about their benefits. For centuries, they've been the people who know God's word, character, works, promises, warnings. The Lord sent them prophets and priests and kings. They've been the object of his affection. They look healthy. The temple looks impressive, but it's kind of like the fake plants that we have in our homes. You almost believe that those leaves are real and this is a healthy plant, but it will never produce fruit. There's no fruit in the people. Jesus looks and he finds nothing but leaves. It's the religious leader's hostility toward Jesus that reveals the sickness in Israel. They are his most consistent opponents. They're always trying to trap him from the beginning, from the moment he steps on the scene. They see him as a threat and they plot to destroy him. You see that same language here. They want to destroy him, but they're afraid of the people because the people are astonished by his teaching. Remember John 1, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. The prophet and they didn't receive him. So Jesus saves his harshest rebukes for the religious leaders. He calls them hypocrites and blind guides and whitewashed tombs. When he thinks about the shepherds of Israel, it stirs up his righteous anger. And he's angry because these shepherds are leading his people astray. They're not leading them towards faith and fruitfulness. They're leading them towards hypocrisy and legalism. The religious leaders think that they're living good lives. We're living clean lives. They think God's pleased with them, but they're so high on themselves that they can only look down on everyone else. They can't see their own sins and they surely can't see Jesus for who he is. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says to them, he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them, in the scriptures, you have eternal life. And he says, these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Like us, the religious leaders were really good at taking the means and turning them into an end. So they make an idol out of the word of God and then they can't see that Jesus is the word of God. Or they make an idol out of the temple and they can't see that Jesus is the temple. He's the prophet, he's the priest, he's standing right in front of them and they can't see it. Their lives should have been full of fruit, but like the fig tree, they're nothing but leaves. They look good on the outside, but deep down there's no health. They're not astonished by Jesus. They're actually annoyed with him, angry with him or worse. So Jesus curses the fig tree as a judgment upon Israel's leadership and Israel and the temple. And as the great prophet, we shouldn't be surprised that his word comes true. Rabbi, look, the fig tree's withered away from the roots. So what does this mean for us? It means that Jesus sees through our hypocrisy. In the New Testament, the word for hypocrisy comes from the theater, from the stage. It means to wear a mask, to be two-faced. 
Hypocrites pretend to be something that they're not, and Jesus sees through it. It might be because we're just going through the motions, or when we care more about how we look than who we really are, when we're doing good things but really have no love for God or people, when we draw near to him with our lips but our hearts are far from him. He sees through it. We're pretending. We need to remember the church is the only institution that requires us to be sinners, to be members. Isn't that interesting? Our first membership vow, do you acknowledge yourselves to be a sinner? That's part of it. That's who we are. We're also saved and saints. So it's not hypocrisy necessarily to be a sinner, but it is hypocrisy to pretend that we're not. It's not hypocrisy to say, I'm a Christian and I struggle but by God's grace, I'm seeking to change. It's hypocrisy when we say, I'm a Christian and I don't struggle and you need to change. And it's that kind of attitude in life that people in the world look at and they don't want anything to do with Christianity because it's not honest. We still struggle. Jesus consistently says, however, you will know the tree by its fruit. He never says you'll know the tree by its leaves. We can fool one another when it's nothing but leaves, but we can't fool Jesus. Because an abiding relationship with Jesus always bears fruit because it unites us with him and his power. And he's interested in us being fully alive, not just being nothing but leaves, but being his, being transformed. So if we're connected to Christ, he's reasonable to expect fruit in our lives. Do you realize the kind of power that we invoke every week when we come into the sanctuary? Think about the songs we're singing just today, Christ triumphant, ever reigning, the power in that song. Or in a few moments, a mighty fortress is our God. I was reminded this week of an Annie Dillard quotation where among other things, she says, we should wear crash helmets when we come to church. And her point is we don't realize what we're doing here. We forget whom we're worshiping. If God's power is truly among us, we should buckle up. You may hear this and think, well, Jesus is too tough. I hear all this judgment. Where's the grace? And if that's you this morning, I understand, but I also want you to consider a few questions like, do you really want to live in a world where God isn't serious about sin? We've all experienced or seen enough evil, I hope, to long for justice. So how should a holy God respond to the evil in our lives, to the evil in the world? Shouldn't he care as much as we do, at least about making things right? And then what makes God's grace amazing? We can't really be amazed by grace, I would argue, if we don't understand or appreciate what our sin deserves. Grace isn't amazing if we don't understand what Mark preached about last week, the wrath of the lamb. If we don't understand what our sin deserves, we won't be amazed by what he's done to bring us back to him. So you think about Christ's love for his people and now you walk with him into the temple and you think about what does he see? This is where people come into God's presence to worship him. And Jesus sees a noisy marketplace of corruption and greed, all the things that Mark talked about last week. Money changers are ripping people off and people are buying and selling animals where they shouldn't be. That's where the Gentiles should be, worshiping God and praying. The priests are taking advantage of people who have come to worship. If you're Jesus, how would you respond? In our weekly devotional, Every Thought Captive, Brett Bradshaw 
wrote a great line this week. It says, Jesus' anger in the temple is the force of God's love in the face of evil. His anger in the temple is the force of God's love in the face of evil. Think about yourself, your love, when you see evil in the life of someone you love or evil committed against someone you love. The force of God's love in the face of evil. See, Jesus is hard on hypocrisy and fruitless religion because these things separate us from him. And he loves us so much and he wants so much more for us. But you think about the mess we've made. How could anyone clean this up? You see Jesus clean up the temple, but it's so much bigger than that one time. In the Old Testament, God gave Israel priests. They were mediators between God and sinful people. So they offered sacrifices and they prayed for people. You think about a priest sacrificing an animal. What a vivid picture that the wages of sin is death. Think of Moses pleading with God not to destroy Israel. But this was an exhausting job. If you were a priest in the temple, your work would never be finished. There was always another sacrifice for your sins, for the sins of the people. God didn't intend for that priesthood to last forever. So when Jesus enters the temple, he's not just another priest reporting for duty. He's the great high priest who's come to fulfill the whole sacrificial system. He's not just another worshiper coming to the temple. He is the temple. And that means something's got to give. So when Jesus clears the temple, it's actually more than a house cleaning. It's an announcement that this era of temple worship is coming to an end. The physical destruction of the temple comes in 70 AD. About 40 years later, Jesus talks about that coming. But the spiritual decline of the temple has been happening for a long time. This temple, with all of its corruption, is no longer necessary because the real temple, Jesus Christ, is here. And it's amazing, his authority, because he comes into the temple and basically says, you've made a mess of my house, my father's house, get out. But what's amazing is, as we see in the Bible, judgment and salvation go hand in hand. So Jesus judges our worship, but then he dies for our sins. He comes as a priest, not to offer an animal, but to offer himself his own blood. And his one sacrifice was sufficient to reconcile his people to himself. And then he sat down, Hebrews says, at the right hand of God because his work was finished. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, Jesus is the one mediator between God and humanity. You want access to God? You want to be in God's presence? Jesus is the way to do that. Because of his sacrifice, we can come into his presence with confidence. We know that he loves us and intercedes for us. We know that he sympathizes with our weaknesses and he wants to make us a temple, a dwelling place for his spirit, more than just leaves, a temple for his spirit, alive from the inside and out. So it's important to see God's righteous judgment in this passage, but don't let it distract you from the bigger story. Jesus entered Jerusalem to die our death so that we could live his life. And what he does as a prophet and priest is truly astonishing. The religious leaders see it and they clearly feel threatened by it. If you look at verses 27 through 33, they confront Jesus about his authority and let's give them credit, they set a good trap. Look at verse 28. By what authority, Jesus, are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? 
You gotta remember, this isn't Jesus' first offense. He's been rocking the religious leader's boat for a few years, and they've been building a case, and they've got evidence. So in Mark 2, Jesus claimed to forgive sins. He accepted sinners. He welcomed tax collectors. He said things about the Sabbath they didn't like. In Mark 7, he was challenging their oral traditions, and in this chapter, he clears the temple. Their point is, Jesus, if you claim to have authority from God, we could charge you with blasphemy. But if you claim that your authority comes from somewhere else, then you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. And it kind of looks like Jesus is trapped, but then he sets an even better trap. Look at verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And I love how he says, answer me. It's not wise to get in these kind of shootouts with Jesus. I don't recommend it. And the religious leaders realize quickly that they're in a bind because everyone thinks that John the Baptist is a prophet, was a prophet, and a martyr. So if they question John the Baptist's authority, they're in trouble with the people. But if they acknowledge God's authority in John's ministry, then they're in bigger trouble because John's ministry was all about preparing the way for, guess who? The guy standing across from them, Jesus. John was the prophet who came before the Messiah, the anointed king. So when John baptized Jesus, it was the inauguration of his ministry. And then Jesus started talking about the kingdom of God. <laughs> if the religious leaders want to embrace John, they have to embrace Jesus too, their package deal. <laughs> and you know they can't go there. There's no way out of the trap, so they answer, we do not know, which is a lie. It's just the latest sin that they can't see. So in confounding the religious leaders, Jesus shows his authority as king. They don't have to say it. He doesn't really have to say it, but he basically makes an argument for his authority, divine authority as king. And they respond to Jesus like so many people around us. Jesus, I, I just don't know. I'm withholding judgment. I'm going to keep my options open. And it sounds good, but it's really probably more of a combination of skepticism and unbelief or cowardice, fear. We, we can't accept the authority of Jesus because it's a threat to our authority and our life. So there's this fascinating thread in Mark's gospel. I don't know if you've seen it. I see it a lot in Mark 10. Wealthy, powerful, important, even religious people don't get Jesus, usually. They come to him, but they don't stay. They're not astonished. They walk away angry or confused or sad. They're not willing to surrender to his authority. He looks like a threat. But people who understand their desperate need come to Jesus. Think about this through the gospel. A paralytic and his friends, a man with a demon, a leper, a blind man. These people with real sin and real struggles find Jesus to be a real savior. The people who seem to be pretending, they don't see it the same. These people are astonished by him. They see his authority, but it's not a threat. Somehow they know Jesus wields that authority to bless me, not to hurt me. So what about us? Where are we in the Gospel of Mark? Are we more like the wealthy, powerful, important, religious people who see Jesus as a threat? If we are, then the gospel probably sounds like bad news to us. Or are we the desperate people who know how much we need Jesus, 
If we are, there's really no better news than the gospel. So we've paused to take a long look at Jesus today, and I just wonder, what do you see? In the world, when we see authority, it's often one-dimensional. You see the power, you see the domination. But in Jesus, we see this amazing picture. He's majestic and meek. He's tough and tender. He's holy and loving. All these things at the same same time. He's the word of God, and yet he's silent when the phony charges come. And he's a roaring lion, but he's also a gentle lamb. He's the glorious king, but he's also the greatest servant. And you put all this together, and I don't know how you can say anything other than there's no one like Jesus. How should we respond to such astonishing authority? Well, he actually tells us. After the fig tree, he tells us. As the great prophet, Jesus reveals the will of God for our salvation, and our response is to believe in him. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, have faith in God. And this is in the context of the apostles really being amazed that, wow, what you said about the fig tree actually happened. And I think what he's saying is, if you look to me, if you put your faith in me, that kind of power starts to work on your life. You won't be just leaves. What does faith sound like? Lord, I turn away from me and I turn to you. I turn away from all these things I've been trying to do, playing the game, pretending, and I turn to you in real dependent faith. I want to turn away from legalism, trying to earn something, hypocrisy, trying to be something I'm not. I just want to rest in who you are and what you've done for me. I want to give up control because I don't have it anyway (laughs) and surrender to your authority, which actually looks really good now that I think about it. This is faith coming to Jesus, looking to him, trusting in him. And by faith, The Bible says we're united with him. We're together with him. We're one with him. And he begins to change us. So he won't let us be nothing but leaves. So where's your faith today? Is it in Jesus Christ or something else? As a great priest, Jesus reconciles us to God and intercedes for us. And you think about, you know, he says, have faith in God. And then he immediately jumps to prayer. So think about this. Faith in God, your eyes are on him. He's the most important thing in your life. And the immediate place he goes application-wise is how you pray. He invites us to pray bold prayers in verse 23. Look, he says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Many people have taken these verses and use them like a blank check. You know, it means that Jesus wants to give me whatever I want. Now, I think if you're honest, you know we shouldn't go down that path. We use scripture to interpret scripture, and Jesus has taught us to pray things like, your kingdom come, your will be done, Matthew 6.10. And he modeled that prayer in Gethsemane when he prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Luke twenty two forty two. So you have to ask, if, if really this passage on prayer means you know, he just wants to give us whatever we ask for, no matter what it is, then Jesus must have lacked faith in the Garden of Gethsemane. He must have doubted, and that's why God didn't take the cup away. And you realize that's not the case. His relationship with the Father was the source of his life. His faith led him to pray bold and big prayers, and his boldest prayer was, not my will, 
but yours be done. And so when we think about this verse, we need to say a couple things. We fail in prayer when we ask selfishly. If that's how you want to take this verse, it's a problem. James 4, he talks about, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, that's one side. But then he says, and when you ask, you ask selfishly with the wrong motives. And so when we do that, it reveals a lack of faith. When all our prayers revolve around us and maybe making our life more comfortable or more whatever, we're more concerned about our kingdom than the kingdom of God. We don't believe that his will is better than ours, that his way is more joyful than ours. And we're treating prayer like magic. God's a genie, but he's not. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. So we don't ask selfishly, but similarly, we also fail in prayer when we don't ask. That reveals a lack of faith too. And I think that's what Jesus has in mind more in this passage. When we don't believe that the father loves us, when we don't believe that he wants to give good gifts to his children, when we forget that we're praying to one who can do more than we ask or imagine, just think about that. If he wants to answer, shouldn't we be praying things that would really make a difference? Think about your prayer list for a second. If God answered your prayers right now, would your life be really different? Would the world be really different? I think it should. Our prayers should make sense in light of his person, his glorious person, and his promises. So Jesus is inviting us to believe in him, to put our faith, to get our eyes on him, and then to pray, bring big prayers to a God who has astonishing authority. And then finally, as the great king, Jesus rules and defends us. He conquers our sin, and he calls us to live a life that reflects his kind rule. As a king, he has forgiven our great debt. You remember that parable? And he calls us to forgive others. Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So when we can't forgive, it's a sign that we might be nothing but leaves. We can't confess our sins. We can't forgive others. But this shouldn't be true for us because the king has paid for all of our sins. He's purchased our forgiveness. When we do forgive one another, it's a sign that the Lord has made us healthy trees that there's fruit growing there. We're astonished by the gospel. We want to share it with others. And so it shows that we're becoming more like Jesus because it's certainly part of his character to forgive. And that's what the world needs to see. He's the great prophet, prophet, priest, and king. He has the power to save us and change us. You think about this passage. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we missed it. We didn't see it. We didn't understand, and ultimately we rejected him. But I don't want us to miss it today. Jesus invites us to come to him, to put our faith in him, to rest in his astonishing authority. Let's pray together. Father, open our eyes, we pray, so that we might see what you want us to see. Lord, help us to see Jesus as our prophet and come to him, the word of God. Help us to see him and come to him as our priest, the one who's made a sacrifice to bring us back. Lord, help us to see and come to him as our king, the one who rules over us for our good. Lord, for everyone in here, whether we know you or not, Lord, I pray that you would work on us. Lord, apply your word to our heart. 
Thank you for the astonishing authority we see in Jesus. Lord, help us to know what a mighty fortress we have in you. We pray in your name. Amen.